大家晚上好，这里是正在为您直播的《新闻》Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Welcome. I'm Ruth Kirchner. We're discussing China's economy today, a subject that usually divides people into two camps: the optimists that see a bright future for China and worry little about either growth rates or the government's ability to manage the economy. On the other hand, those who think China's economy is seriously unbalanced and a collapse, or at least a hard landing, is all but inevitable. Now, who's right and who is wrong? With me is Arthur Krober. He is managing director of Gavecal Dragonomics, an independent research firm. He's based. In Beijing, where he has lived since 2002, and he's just written a new book, China's Economy: What Everyone Needs to Know. Arthur, before we tackle the bear or bull question, let's talk about growth rates. The government still promises medium to fast growth, meaning maybe 6.5 percent or higher. Do you think that's realistic? In the short term, I think that's certainly achievable, and I think that's what we can expect for the next year or two. But beyond、uh, next year, I think that's an unrealistically high target, and the the problem is that the government seems committed to supporting this growth rate through an increase in credit and other stimulus measures, which I think creates some problems in the、uh, in the longer term. So you think that、uh, predictions of eight percent growth for the next twenty、uh, years,、um, as predicted by a former World Bank head just two years ago, actually, you think that optimism seems a little far-fetched these days? Yeah, What has think, changed? Yeah, I, I think those kinds of, of forecasts are very unrealistic, and they're not really based on, in my opinion, on a, a careful look at what China's potential is. My personal view is that if we see the right policies enacted over the next few years, which would lead to a stabilization of credit and a stabilization of growth, it's perfectly possible for China to grow by five percent or so for the next ten to fifteen years. And it's important to remember that that would be an excellent achievement for a country of China's size and level of income. You are saying that、uh, certain reforms have to be implemented.、Uh, let's come to that in a moment. Let's first talk a little bit about the challenges and some of the economic indicators. And many people would argue that growth through investment is far too high. Is it? Yes, it is. Although I think people forget that the way that you become rich is by investing a lot. So the fact that China, for the last thirty years, has had quite high investment rates. In and of itself is not the big problem. The problem is that we're getting to the end of the phase of development where extremely high investment rates can be a driver of growth. So I think basically China has two challenges. One is they need to make a transition from the what I would call the the construction phase of growth or the phase where you grow a lot simply by installing the basic infrastructure of a modern economy, and they may need to make a transition into a new. Era where growth comes more from efficiency in the use of resources, consumer spending, and services, and that's a very difficult transition. A lot of countries had problems、uh, going through that. The other transition that China faces is a demographic one. It's had very favorable demographics for the last 35 years—a very young population. But the population is aging rapidly, and again, that makes it very hard to sustain high rates of growth. So、uh, they should stop building those airports that、uh, see just one or two. Takeoffs or landings per day. 
Yeah. So I think clearly China has had some overinvestment in certain kinds of infrastructure, but they've also had underinvestment in other kinds of infrastructure, particularly things like sewer systems and metro systems and cities. They've had enormous increase in urban population and they've built a lot of housing, but they haven't necessarily built all of the other infrastructure that you need to have a city work properly. You already mentioned housing. Uh, there are stories abound about those ghost towns in remote regions in Ningxia, in Gansu, in Inner Mongolia. At the same time, we, we see the process of urbanization. So China needs a lot of housing, but they have too much. It's a slightly complicated picture. Broadly speaking, China has overbuilt urban housing. There's excess inventories, and those will need to be worked off over the next uh, year or two. It's also the case that China has has not always built uh, the most appropriate kind of housing. So the big increase in urban population has come from migrant workers moving into the cities. These are people with very low incomes, and they can't afford a lot of the housing that's been built, which has been catered to a, to a richer population. That's beginning to change. An increasing proportion of housing that's built in China is so-called social housing, which targets lower income uh, residents. So I think there are clearly some structural problems in the Chinese housing market, but they are not likely to lead to the kind of collapse that some of the more pessimistic commentators uh, claim that will. Let's move on to some of the other challenges. Uh, debt, that is crippling, especially local government. How much of a problem is that for China? I think there's a little bit of a misunderstanding here. Uh, local governments have borrowed a lot of money and in not a very prudent way. But the total amount of debt in the government sector, whether the central government or the local governments, is not really the problem. The problem in China is the high level of corporate debt, and particularly debt among the state-owned enterprises. So broadly speaking, state enterprises in China account for about a third of the economy. They borrow on average twice as much as private companies, but they deliver a financial return that is less than half of private companies. So there's clearly a lot of debt that's building up in state enterprises that is not very productive economically. And at the moment, this is unlikely to spark any kind of a financial crisis. But if you look at the trajectory of the debt levels and how the banks raise their funds, it seems quite possible that within three or four years, you could hit a, a potential financial crisis in China unless they make some changes to, number one, stabilize the financial position of the banks, and then number two, ensure that when banks lend money, they lend it increasingly to the productive private sector as opposed to the relatively unproductive state sector. This is Merrick's Experts. With me is Arthur Krober of Gavekal Dragonomics. We're discussing the state of the Chinese economy. Now, changing the growth model. Uh, that's been the Chinese mantra for years. Uh, Wen Jiabao talked about it at least since like 2005 or six. Uh, Li Keqiang is talking about it. Uh, they're talking the talk. Are they walking the walk? Well, I have to say not so much. I think it is noteworthy. We've had significant changes in the structure of the Chinese economy. So, for example, 
uh, services now account for over half of economic output and the industry is down to about 40%. And that essentially reverses the ratios that we saw 10 years ago. Consumer spending is one of the uh, biggest growth uh, drivers in the economy right now. So we have had some significant movement to an economy that is less based on building of housing and infrastructure and more based on consumer spending and services. But it's not quite enough. And I think that the key issue is that there are some deep structural problems that only policy can address. And the two most important of these are, number one, the structure and scope of the state-owned enterprises, and then number two, the uh, structure of the financial sector. State enterprises suck up too much lending, deliver too little return. They need to be streamlined. The state-owned enterprise sector probably needs to be cut by a third or a half. And those resources redirected to uh, private companies. You need to deregulate some sectors, particularly uh, service sectors such as finance, health, education, and so forth. And then you need to restructure the financial sector to recapitalize the banks and incentivize them to lend more for productive commercial purposes and less for political reasons. Even though we see continued strength in the consumer economy, there are these pieces of the puzzle that need to be addressed by policy. And so far, we've seen very little progress on those two issues. Massive problems on the macroeconomic level. China does want to become an innovative society, an economy driven also by innovation and high tech. How innovative then are Chinese uh, companies? Well, I think this is, uh, particularly in the U.S., where I come from, I think this is often misunderstood because in uh, rich countries, there's a, a tendency to think of innovation as stuff that Apple does. And the reality is that it's a much broader concept. And yeah, you see enormous amounts of innovation going on every day in China by private companies, by entrepreneurs in all nooks and crannies of the economy. So it's very vibrant. It's very dynamic. Most of this innovation is what I would call adaptive innovation, where they take some existing technology or business process or concept and try to make it work better in the Chinese context. There's very little what you could call global innovation, so innovation by Chinese companies that is exportable. I think what China aspires to is getting that second kind of global innovation. And here we have a problem. I think there's a very strong desire uh, by the government and policymakers to make this happen. But I don't think they are really willing to accept the degree of market discipline in the economy that is required for really top-level innovation to occur. And there's a real contradiction in government policy between, on the one hand, wanting more market forces, wanting more innovation, wanting more creativity, and on the other hand, wanting to insist on a very high level of control by the Communist Party of not just the economy, but of media academia, civil society, and all of the sort of idea-generating parts of society that contribute to the innovation process. And I don't really see how you can get first-class global-level innovation with the kinds of political controls that the party wants to impose. So you see that as one of the main obstacles, that uh, the party wants to keep the political grip and that uh, runs counter to their goal of turning China into a more innovative society. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think this is a real change because if you look back over the last 30 plus years of Chinese economic history, what's striking is that the, the party has always had two objectives. One was to maintain control 
and the second objective was to have a vibrant economy. And they've actually done an extraordinary job of getting both. And they've gotten both because successive leaders from Deng Xiaoping to Jiang Zemin and even Hu Jintao were willing here and there to sacrifice bits and pieces of political control in order to get economic growth. What we see now under Xi Jinping is a leader who is much, much more single-mindedly concerned with maintaining control and who seems to be willing to sacrifice economic vitality in order to uh, maintain that control. So how would you rate then Xi Jinping's handling of the economy so far? Not so great, I have to say. And, you know, the economy is still growing. It's growing around somewhere between six and six and a half percent. But I think the, the key point is that there is no clarity within the government, within the private sector, within anywhere, about what is the overall direction of government policy. Is this a government that, broadly speaking, wants to increase the role of markets or not? And the answer is we simply don't know. The signals have been very confusing. A lot of the statements by Xi Jinping and other top officials have been, yes, we want more markets. But if you look at their actions, particularly last year on the stock market and the foreign exchange markets, it seems that they want markets until prices go down, and then they intervene to stop prices from going down. And the fact is, if you want markets, you have to accept that prices go up, they go down, and the government just has to step back and not try to micromanage. So there's a contradiction between the stated desire for more markets and the actions which seem to show a great discomfort with markets, and really no one knows what the plan is. You sound uh, somewhat uh, pessimistic. Uh, then finally, let's return once more to the bear or bull question. What is your scenario then for China's future? Well, I think for the next year or year and a half, it's it's fairly straightforward. I, I think uh, growth will continue to, at approximately the present rate. And there's a very simple reason for that, which is that in the fall of 2017, There is uh, the big uh, party congress, which the Communist Party holds every five years. Xi Jinping, for him, this is very important, and he wants to be in a very strong position so that he can appoint his own people to the key positions. So he has to have a strong economy going into that congress, which means that the government is going to continue to support the economy through infrastructure spending and credit stimulus for the next 18 months to one degree or another. The question is, what happens after that? And I think there are broadly two paths. One is that at that point when Xi Jinping has consolidated his political control, he starts to pay more attention to the structural problems in the economy. He really does start to move more aggressively on some of these important reforms for state-owned enterprises in the finance sector. The bad scenario would be that after he consolidates political power, She doesn't really do any of these economic reforms. They can continue to sustain growth to some degree through credit stimulus, but then you would have a slow, gradual deceleration of the growth rate because you just simply would not have the productivity gains necessary for a truly vibrant economy. And then after about five years, China might be growing by only 2% with very high debt levels. And, and frankly, at that point, would look a lot like Japan started to look in the 1990s where they got caught in a high debt low-growth trap. So I, I really think that the key turning point will be in about a year and a half, two years from now, when we really see how committed Xi Jinping and his colleagues are to the kinds of serious structural reforms necessary to promote long-term productivity growth. 
So a lot of uncertainty. Arthur, thanks for sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, that was Arthur Krober of Gavekal Dragonomics and also of a new book on China's economy. I'm Ruth Kirchner. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.